1: DRIPPING DOWN SCIENCE THE NAKED SCIENTISTS
2: Today, Sunday the 15th of April, marks 100 years since the sinking of the Titanic. And in recognition of this centenary, this week we're diving into the underwater world to look at a new vehicle being delivered by Rolls Royce to rescue people trapped in sunken submarines.
3: In exercises, we've demonstrated the ability to leave the surface, go to the disabled submarine, perhaps 80 to 100 metres below the surface, and achieve a mate in less than 15 minutes.
2: We'll also find out what else is lurking in the depths with the help of a marine scientist who studies the deepest places on Earth, up to seven miles down. Hello, I'm Ben Valsler and also here this week is Sarah Caster perry
4: Hello. In the news this week, what are robots revealing about how we hear in noisy places and how do homing pigeons find their way home?
2: So if you would like to get in touch with any questions or any
4: comments... You can tweet at naked scientists, comment up facebook.com/slash the naked scientists, or email chris at the naked scientist.com.
1: The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.co.uk.
2: 100 years ago today, the cruise ship Titanic hit an iceberg and sank with a tragic loss of life. So to start today's show, we're going to look at some technology that's designed to save lives out at sea. Submarines, manned or unmanned, have been vital in learning about the deep sea, as well as playing an essential role as part of our armed forces. But sometimes subs get into trouble. Unlike the passengers of a surface vehicle, submariners don't have the option to simply bail out into lifeboats, and this makes submarine accidents very dangerous. To help save lives in these thankfully rare situations, Britain, along with France and Norway, have funded the development of the NATO Submarine Rescue System, or NSRS, a project delivered by Rolls-Royce. John T. Powis is a retired submarine commander who now works for Rolls-Royce as a submarine expert. Well, if you ask
3: people how many submarines have been lost at sea in peacetime, most people can name the Kursk and one or two others. But the truth is, since the end of World War Two, there have been at least 34 submarines sink. So submarining generally is a dangerous activity.
2: What sort of things are likely to go wrong?
3: Collision is perhaps the single most important reason that submarines sink. Many of those 34 submarines were lost in collision. What actually happens? What do the people inside
2: experience?
3: We've done a few trials, actually. We've, we've parked a submarine on the bottom, which you can do, and it's quite interesting because they go onto a minimum diet, very little water, uh, high complex carbohydrates, sort of biscuits they eat. They are ghastly. But the principal issue is going to be one of boredom. Uh, and that boredom is complicated by the fact that if they're at an elevated pressure, eventually you're going to get an onset, if the pressure goes up sufficiently, of nitrogen I and mean, when It's essentially a drunken sensation. But, of course, having a sunken submarine, which is a pretty dangerous environment, full of people who are inebriated or suffering from nitrogen narcosis, uh, is an even more dangerous situation. Another issue, which isn't generally appreciated, is that with the normal constituents of the atmosphere, as you raise the pressure, oxygen starts to become poisonous. There's a thing called oxygen toxicity, which essentially starts when the partial pressure of oxygen exceeds about half an atmosphere. Uh, So that's above about 25, 30 metres of immersion. So you've got really quite a knotty medical problem to deal with
2: once you extract these guys. So what is it that we're now hoping to do, or what is it that the NATO submarine rescue system has been trying to do?
3: Well, submarine rescue really kicked off just before the Second World War. Uh, There was an American system based essentially on a diving bell which you could winch down to a submarine on a wire and it would attach itself to a prepared mating surface around the escape hatch, pump out the water in between and then hydrostatic pressure held it on and you could get guys eight or nine at a time back to the surface. So the idea of rescue grew wings, uh, more or less literally, in that the Americans invented a thing called the DSRV, the Deep Submergence Rescue Vehicle, which was capable of being flown anywhere in the world and rescue the guys 24 at a time. At the same time, the Brits, early in the 80s, we realised that it was probably a good idea to develop some sort of capability of our own. So we modified a North Sea oil rig maintenance and diver transport submarine called LR-3, subsequently replaced by one called LR-5, and they could be used to mate to a distressed submarine on the bottom and extract people. NSRS, which went into service in 2007 is very much a better system, completely air transportable, capable of reaching anywhere in the world in somewhere between 72 and 96 hours. That might sound a long time. But you would expect people to survive for perhaps as long as seven days. So that gives us a margin to actually find them, reach them and rescue them. So what happens
2: for us back here on land when we first hear that there is a submarine in trouble? What are the processes that then kick off?
3: You're going to be confronted with a submarine relatively close to shore, one imagines, too deep, though, for them to make a free ascent to the surface. So the alert will go up, a buoy will be released, or something will arrive on the surface. The in satellites will very quickly produce a position, which is quite accurate, to within a couple of hundred yards. We then have two systems we deploy, one called Intervention, which is relatively small. This consists of a remotely operated vehicle, relatively lightweight set of equipment, and they can actually deploy to the scene about a day before the rescue system, localise the submarine very precisely, survey it, establish communications with the people surviving inside if possible. They can also engage in what we call pod posting, where watertight pods of life support stores, food, medicine, clothing, whatever you like, can be posted into the submarine through one of the escape towers. So when the rescue system turns up, some 24 hours or so later, we would expect the submarine to be ready for rescue. But how do we get there? Well, the system is stored, broken down into its constituent elements. No component, except the submarine, weighs more than 16 tonnes, so they can be readily transported by flatbed lorry, delivered to an aircraft and flown to the scene. We can get the whole system on a prepared deck, secured in about 18 hours. You then know that there's no point staying alongside, time to sail... The hyperbaric treatment centre is then commissioned on the way out there and that means you would arrive on scene and you would just launch the submarine immediately. And once you've got 30 or so guys out, that's one leg of the hyperbaric treatment centre filled, Shuttle the hatches, start the decompression process. Meanwhile, the submarine is still working like a little underwater ambulance.
2: What does the rescue serve actually look like?
3: It's white. It's rather stubby, about 10 metres long and about 3.5 metres high. And underneath the submarine hangs an inverted cup, which is the skirt, the mating skirt, which has a simple rubber seal around its bottom lip. And that's what makes the seal. Remember, it is only hydrostatic pressure which holds us on. It's a considerable force, about 1.8 tonnes for every metre of immersion. It has a large window at the front. Now, it might sound a very trite thing to say, but that window is one of the secrets of our success, the ability for the pilot inside the vehicle to actually see what he's doing. In exercises, we've demonstrated the ability to leave the surface, go to the disabled submarine, perhaps 80 to 100 metres below the surface, and achieve a mate in less than 15 minutes. Remotely operated vehicles can also do it, but it takes considerably longer.
2: I assume that it's versatile, and heaven forbid, if you did have to use it, it would actually work with most, if not all, of the submarines that are currently out there.
3: Yes, well, that's an interesting question. For some time, NATO had been running an annual working group which looked at submarine rescue and escape, and it's an opportunity to see what other people are doing. Um, Gradually, the NATO standards have been accepted across the world. Virtually anything you can think of, has now got a NATO standard applied to it. Touch wood, if we find ourselves going to a rescue, the ability to have everybody following the standard, the saving of life has been made incomparably
2: more likely. John T. Powers from Rolls-Royce telling me about the NATO submarine rescue system.
4: It's said that we understand the surface of the Moon better than the deep sea, but new missions and novel submersible technology are finally shedding some light on the darkness of the deep. Now, a major international collaboration is embarking on a mission to conduct the first systematic study of life in the deepest marine habitat on Earth, ocean trenches, which are regions of the seafloor about 11,000 metres deep. This programme, known as HADES, or the HADL Ecosystem Studies, includes the University of Aberdeen's Ocean Lab researcher, Alan Jameson, who joins us now. Hi, Alan.
5: Hello, how are you doing?
4: So, to start off with, when did we first realise that the deep sea was able to support life at all?
5: Well, the deep sea technically starts at around 200 metres, and I think it was in the it was the 1800s or 1700s where a guy called Edward Forbes once said there was absolutely no chance that life could survive in the deep sea. And I think when somebody sticks their neck out and says something like that, it kind of prompted a whole wave of people to go out and, and, and continually beat that. But it wasn't until the 1950s where they actually pulled up animals that we could... Confirm we're actually alive on the bottom at depths greater than ten thousand metres.
4: And if we're looking at the kind of creatures that live down there, what are the conditions that they have to deal with?
5: Well, first, the, it's obviously a complete lack of sunlight uh, beyond a thousand metres. You don't think you can you can even detect photons after that. The food supply is fairly low, just because the you know majority of food comes from the surface, and the further removed you are from that, the, the lower the quantity is. Normally, the temperatures are between one and two degrees. And the pressure, of course, is, is something like one tonne per square centimetre, which is extraordinarily high.
4: So what sort of species do we see down there? I mean, I know that recently you, you were involved in the discovery of a giant amphipod, this sort of giant shrimp thing. It yes. seems like a lot of the species down there are pretty weird and wonderful.
5: Most taxa are represented in the very deepest parts. And the four main ones are amphipods, uh, uh, sea cucumbers, worms and, and, and bivalves and things like that. But there's an interesting thing where... Despite lots of tacks have been surviving at 10,000 metres plus, quite a lot of them drop out between 8,000 and 8,500, which is interesting. And we think that's just a, a pressure effect. So like so fish and decapods and things like that, they only survived about 8 8,000 to 8,500.
4: And is it questions like that like why why do we see this drop off at that point that you 're hoping to answer with hades what are What are the big questions you 're hoping to answer
5: well, the thing with with the Hades project is is when you 're looking at the very, very deep parts, the Hadle zone is not a continuation of the slopes down to the abyssal plain because the Hadle zone is made up of trenches big subducting trenches, and they 're all isolated from one another so it's kind of it 's similar to mountain ecology you know, you know, high altitude there isn 't one big continuous habitat at these extreme depths there are pockets around the Pacific. So what we're looking at is, is we know quite a lot about the Abyssal Plains, but how does that change once you start to plummet down into the trenches? The justification we're doing is is there's lots of information, lots of science being done about depth-related trends but they're missing out the bottom 45% of the depth range. <laughs> so there's, like, there's a huge chunk of information that we don't know there. And, and our overarching philosophy is that to sustain and conserve the oceans, that we need to know everything from the surface to the very deep bit. You can't just you know, study the top bit and assume that you know, that's fine. So somebody has to do the deep bit, and that's where we come in.
4: And what sort of equipment will you be using to go down that far?
5: Well, we have two main sampling devices. One is the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute's uh, new... ROV called race and it's it's capable of descending to 11,000 meters and it has done uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, and we will use that to do video transects to look at what's living on the bottom, to take sediment cores and things like that. And we'll be using our own systems which are called landers, which are like free fall camera tripods. So they just descend through the, through the water column and crash land on the bottom and they use bait so they attract in the more mobile animals that you wouldn't normally see on the ROV. We have a couple of camera systems that do that and some traps as well. Just some very simple baited traps work surprisingly well at those depths.
4: So it's going to be a combination of looking at what's down there live, as it were, with cameras, but also you're going to be bringing samples back up to the surface?
5: Yes, I think the combination of the two is is really important. Well, you have to get the samples because we, you know, from various uh, cellular and, and and physiological studies and things like that, plus from a taxonomic level. But the reason why the hadal biology, for example, is is decades behind any other area in deep sea is because they uh, originally when they did it, it was nothing more than a taxonomic exercise. They didn't really look at what was, what their, these animals are actually doing and what their role was in the ecosystem. So it's important to do a combination of both.
4: And if we're talking about the kind of challenges that life faces down there, the pressure, the darkness, how does that affect our sort of job of designing stuff to actually go down there and look at these things?
5: Yeah, there's a whole bunch of problems involved in this. (laughs) And that's what slowed down uh, hadal biology uh, over the years, was the technical challenges. But I don't believe they exist anymore. Uh, The problem is, is mainly two things. The extraordinarily high hydrostatic pressure at depth and coping with that And the second thing is just the distance from the bottom to the surface. Because if you imagine you want to take a simple sediment core, if you wanted to do that uh, off the beach, you'd just walk out and take a core. But at 10,000 meters, you need to find a ship which has enough wire to lower down, hit the bottom, back up again. And that operation itself would probably take the best part of a day, plus most research vessels won't carry that kind of wire. And even then, most wires will break under its own weight at that kind of depth. So, so. Uh, this is why we use freefall instruments, to try and overcome that. So, so once, the, once the vehicle leaves the ship, we have no more contact with it. It just basically sinks, hits the bottom And At the end of the experiment, we send an acoustic command to it, and it drops its weights and then floats back to the surface again. It's, it's very complicated, very expensive business to be in.
4: So what, what exactly are you hoping to find down there?
5: What we're looking at is to try and challenge this perception that the very, very deep sea is some kind of stagnant, stable environment that's just kind of echoing out in existence in the dark and is of no consequence. you know, There's more and more evidence to suggest, or even proven, that on the deep abyssal plains, even at four or 5,000 metres, there is natural variation throughout the year, but no one's really looked on, the, on long enough time scales and we know absolutely nothing really about the ecosystems of these deep trenches and, and where the f- food ends up. And it's, a, it's very difficult to try and predict what's going to happen because these, these trench habitats are so unique in terms of topography. And of course the subduction zones as well, so you have this huge seismic activity thing going on there as well. So you know, what happens to the ecosystem then when these, these enormous mudslides cascading down the trench walls and things like that? So it's, it's, it's a very unique habitat.
4: And so it's not a case that we can really compare it to the kind of energy flow that we see up on land?
5: No, I mean, you know, if you look at the globe, most of the Earth is deep sea, but they're normally big, huge, vast, abyssal plains. So when all the food and the productivity in the surface starts to rain down, it'll land on the seafloor more or less uniformly, uh, whether constantly all year round or in pulses. But when it goes to the trench, the trench doesn't hold it like that because the trench is a kind of V-shaped cross-section. So theoretically, anything that comes down should get funneled along the trench axis. So therefore, it's questioning whether or not depth really matters. It's where on the trench really matters, we think. So one of the things we're trying to prove is, is whether or not you'll have this thing called the trench resource accumulation depth where there's a greater amount of food on the trench axis than there are on the walls.
4: That's right in right in the very sort of the point of the V.
5: Yes, yeah. So basically all the food coming down will get funneled towards the bottom. Whereas on the abyssal planes they would just lie sort of uniformly.
4: Great. Well thanks Alan. That's that's Alan Jamieson from the Ocean Lab at the University of Aberdeen.
5: Lifting the lab
1: coat on the world's best science, The Naked Scientists.
2: This is The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, and with Sarah Costa perry Still to come, we'll find out how volcanoes naturally acidify seawater and how the species nearby adapt to cope with it. But with rising CO2 levels in the atmosphere, which leads to higher acidity in the oceans, are we pushing these species too far? But first, we can have a look at what's been going on in the science headlines this week. Picking out a single voice in a noisy room can be quite a challenge. Our ears are assaulted by a wide range of noises that all compete for our attention, and yet somehow we're still able to enjoy a coherent conversation. Now, research suggests that the way that we move our heads may have a significant impact on how we interpret the sounds that reach our ears. How we distinguish different streams of audio has been studied for a long time. A very basic example is distinguishing between two tones in different patterns. So if you listen to a basic two-tone pattern that simply alternates A-B-A, then it's almost impossible to hear it as anything other than a sort of musical A-B-A sequence. But when we then hear it looped, A, B, A, A, B, A, A, B, A, the brain will adapt and separate it into two streams so we can distinguish A, 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 A and B, B, B. So let's give that a go. Here's the simple sequence that you might first hear.
4: Yep, just three three little notes, A, B, A.
2: Now, if we listen to it again, but looped, you should find that after a while, your hearing separates out into two different streams. It might take a few seconds to happen. Yep. Yep.
4: Yep. That's separating now. I can. Yeah, I can hear that.
2: Now, I find that happens very quickly for me. It definitely separates out. Now, here's the interesting thing that this new research has showed. So, now I'm going to hit play again, and I want you to wait until you can interpret it as two different streams, and then just look around the room and see what happens. So,
4: here we go. It sort of goes back into the ABAABA ABA again.
2: That's right. What seems to happen when we move our heads is we pay attention in a different way and it goes back to that galloping. We are no longer able to distinguish the two streams. But why is it that moving your head, even when the auditory environment, those sounds don't actually change, why should that cause you to lose your adaptation? To untangle the potential consequences of head movement, Hirohito Kondo and colleagues at the NTT Communication Science Laboratories in Japan set up what's called a robotic mimicry study, and they described it in the journal PNAS this week. A special robot, known as the telehead, was set up to exactly mimic the head movements of a series of volunteers who were in separate soundproofed rooms. Microphones in the robot's ear canal would then broadcast sounds to headphones that the volunteers were wearing, so they heard only and exactly what the robot was hearing. They then played a series of sounds much like these ABA sequences to the robot, and the volunteers were asked to move their heads. And then in a second series of experiments, the volunteers stayed dead still while the robot repeated their previous head movements. Now, crucially, that means that it presents the same acoustic cues to the volunteer, but without the changes in movement and the changes in attention that come with it. That then allowed the researchers to see if it's the change in the sound or if it's the head movement that was responsible for the change in perception. And oddly enough, they really found that it was both a sudden change in sound, either through intentionally moving your own head or through the auditory cues themselves changing, caused a resetting in the interpretation of the sound back to that single stream instead of the two streams. The authors then argue that the brain must rely on both head position and the relative difference in sound between our ears in order to interpret the audio environment. So it's quite a complicated thing that the brain is doing, but it needs to do it to pick out the gossip over cocktails.
4: I've always been really bad at that. In a noisy room, I'd sort of really concentrate on one person's conversation at a time, which I suppose is a good thing in a way. You're really listening to them.
2: (laughs) Well, yes, you are. But at the same time, that chimes in with this work very well, because if you concentrate, you stay very still, you won't lose that adaptation. But then as soon as you do move, you will lose it. So this is also probably why we sort of try and stay very still when we're listening to somebody.
4: I'll have to make sure I remember to take a neck brace with me to the next cocktail party that I go to. Now, I have a story about Fragile X syndrome and how researchers have found a possible new treatment. Fragile X syndrome is the most common genetic cause of mental retardation in boys and the main single gene cause of autism. It's caused by a mutation on the X chromosome in the Fragile X Mental Retardation 1, or FMR1, gene. It stops the protein that this codes for from being made, The protein, FMRP, is essential for brain development and also for female fertility. Individuals with the mutation show symptoms including learning difficulties, problems with social interaction and physical symptoms like prominent ears and enlarged testicles in boys after puberty. Now at the moment there isn't a treatment for the syndrome as a whole and individual symptoms like hyperactivity and anxiety are treated separately with separate drugs. But now, work carried out by Orbin Michelon and Michael Sidorov, published this week in the journal Neuron, has pointed to a possible treatment for multiple symptoms of Fragile X. Previous work has shown that one of the ways Fragile X affects the brain is through one of the receptors for the neurotransmitter glutamate. This MGLU5 receptor behaves abnormally in patients with Fragile X and prevents proper signalling at the synapses, which are the little joins between the nerves in the brain, causing the cognitive impairments. Drugs that cause short-term inhibition of these receptors have been shown to produce a reduction of symptoms but until now no studies of longer acting mGlu5 inhibitors has been carried out. Michelon and Sidorov worked with mice without the FMR1 gene which meant that they didn't produce the FMRP protein and these mice show similar learning and memory deficits to humans with fragile x as well as sharing the hypersensitivity to auditory stimuli. The team administered the drug C-T-E-P to adolescent mice and then observed them after four weeks of treatment and 17 weeks of treatment. The idea of using adolescent mice and not newborns was to see if treatment with this drug could reverse symptoms in a brain that was already almost fully developed, rather than trying to prevent symptoms from developing in a still developing brain.
2: Well, it makes sense to be looking at adolescent brains, but what did they see? What were the results?
4: Well, after four weeks, they found that the treatment had reversed the deficit in learning and memory compared to the control mice and also their hypersensitivity to sounds. And then after the 17-week treatment, the mice showed a reduction in their hyperactivity as well. And it also partially corrected their enlarged testicles, so a physical response as well, but without causing any reduction in testosterone levels or general fitness of the mice either. Now, MGLU5 inhibitors are already in clinical trials for Fragile X in humans. So the researchers hope that these studies will show the breadth of improvements for these patients as they found in their mouse study.
2: So it's clearly treating a lot of the symptoms. That probably suggests that what it's targeting is is really the root cause.
4: It also means that at the moment, people with Fragile X are taking a lot of different drugs for a lot of different symptoms. And hopefully, if this sort of MGLU5 long-term inhibitor turns out to be successful in the human trials, then it means that we can put people on fewer drugs, which might have interactions that are giving them bad side effects.
2: So it's obviously one that we need to keep an eye on. But every time we discover something that is the root cause of a problem, that leads us closer to treating, to preventing. So really good news. Now how do birds navigate very long distances? It's been known for a while that many different animal species are sensitive to Earth's magnetic field and they use this to find their way around. So when researchers spotted iron-rich cells in the beaks of homing pigeons they concluded that they must be magnetically sensing nerve cells wired up to the bird's brain like a sort of neurological compass. But it looks like this conclusion was actually a step in the wrong direction, because now new research obtained by scanning the heads of hundreds of pigeons has shown that these iron-rich cells are not neurons, but they're actually immune cells and probably have nothing to do with navigation. David Keyes from the Institute of Molecular Pathology in Vienna explains more. The big question in this field is
6: how do animals detect the magnetic fields? Um, And for the last decade or so, it's been believed that pigeons detect magnetic fields by using neurons that contained crystals of iron that were located in the very front of their beak. And we started working on this about four years ago, and our goal really was just to replicate those studies that had previously been published, but unfortunately we weren't, weren't able to do so.
2: What is the evidence that birds have this magnetic navigation at all? Could it just be that we've got the wrong idea entirely, and so we're going off looking for a mechanism for something that doesn't actually happen?
6: So it's clear that when birds migrate, they use multiple cues. They use vision, smell, and the evidence is that they also use magnetic fields. And multiple groups have been able to show independently that birds can detect and respond to changes in the earth's magnetic field
7: so obviously
2: the question is still open but what, what were you actually doing to look at what was thought to be these iron-rich neurons we took a, a pigeon
6: and we sliced it up into wafer thin sections from the tip of the beak all the way back and then we took these sections and we stained them with a very simple and basic chemical stain called prussian blue and it makes iron-rich cells bright blue in color And then we wanted to map the location of these cells uh, onto the pigeon beak, so we used uh, MRI and advanced uh, imaging technologies. And this revealed really a startling diversity in the distribution and the location of these iron-rich cells in the pigeon beak. So in in one of our pigeons, uh, pigeon 203, which is a reflection of how many pigeons we looked at, it had about 108,000, 109,000 cells, whereas pigeon 200, which was the same age and same sex, had just 200 of these iron-rich cells. So this kind of got us thinking that these blue cells probably uh, were a bit of a red herring and uh, weren't involved in a true magnetic sense.
7: You would
2: assume that if it is so important for navigation that it would be quite well conserved between different pigeons and even between different species of birds. So clearly that's an indicator that this isn't actually doing that job. That's, that's spot on. This is a big clue
6: that these cells weren't the magnetoreceptors and then we got a, another bit of luck, really. Pigeon 199 had an inflammatory lesion in the, in the front of its beak, and it was surrounded by about 80,000 of, of these blue cells that kind of infiltrated this lesion, and, and that got us thinking that maybe these blue cells have, have something to do with the immune system. And we confirmed this by using transmission electron microscopy to actually see inside the cells, and we found these cells are packed full of ferritin granules, which is... kind of an iron storage protein and they have these long tentacles and in some of our images you can actually see them kind of engulfing other
2: cells. So that suggests that they are in fact macrophages, these big eater cells, part of the immune system that are responsible for getting rid of infection and so on. Why would macrophages be so full of iron?
6: Ah, so the other role that macrophages play is they recycle iron from, from red blood cells So they build up all this iron, and then they also play a role in iron homeostasis.
2: So we would expect macrophages to be sources of iron anyway. And does this completely put to bed the idea that these are nerve cells and that they could be responsible for navigation? We would
6: say it does. But what it really does is just raise a whole lot of new questions. So how do pigeons detect magnetic fields? How do other birds detect magnetic fields? It had previously been asserted that this was a magnetic sense system that was common to avian species. All we've shown is that macrophages are found in all avian species. So, jury's out as to how they do, in fact,
2: detect magnetic fields. When you were doing such high-resolution imaging and, and looking very closely at these, did you get a clue from the distribution of what might be going on? Do we think that that perhaps there's a, an interaction between the macrophages and nerves or are the macrophages purely doing their normal jobs and it's just a coincidence that we find them in the beak?
6: Well, if we've thought about this and I suppose it's hypothetically possible that a macrophage might be a magnetoreceptor but it, it really seems so unlikely. In the hunt for the true magnetoreceptors, we're now looking at other regions
2: of the pigeon head. So where are we looking? Where, where do we think is the right place to start looking? And if they're not going to be these iron-containing cells that we originally thought, what are we now looking for?
6: At the moment, we're looking at, uh, at the olfactory epithelium. So the olfactory rosette in uh, rainbow trout have been implicated in, in magnetoreception And so we're having a closer look at this region in the pigeon. And it's also clear that birds, particularly migratory birds, also use a light-dependent mechanism that most probably resides in the retina and relies on a molecule or is thought to rely on a molecule called cryptochrome. And so there's probably a magnetic
2: compass in the eye of birds as well. David Keyes from the Institute of Molecular Pathology in Vienna. And that work was published in the journal Nature this week. And I think it's a good reminder that science is an ever-changing field and sometimes what we think we know turns out to be wrong. Now, cancerous colon cells have a distinctive genetic signature which could be used to develop personalised treatments or to identify those at risk of developing the disease. Writing in the journal Science, Case Western Reserve University researcher Peter Scacheri explains how colon cancer cells from different people and at different stages of the disease all showed certain epigenetic changes. These are alterations in the proteins that bind to and control expression of DNA. So, looking at colon cells known as crypt cells, the researchers took samples from healthy volunteers as well as early and late stage tumours and labelled the genetic material with a marker. This allowed them to identify thousands of regions in cancerous cells that are either lost or gained when compared with healthy cells. And in fact, the lost ones instead of the gained ones had a very significant impact on cell function. Epigenetic changes like these have a profound effect on the process of cells becoming cancerous. In all, they actually found that the number of gene enhancers that are modified in the disease state was significantly higher than the number of mutated genes themselves. And importantly, this was less variable from one tumour to the next. Now, colon cancer is linked with diet and obesity. It's one of the most common forms of cancer, certainly one of the biggest killers. And as with all cancers, identifying markers of the disease, especially early on, improves the likelihood of successful treatment. Now, understanding the changes that happen not only to the genes themselves, but also to gene switches and regulators, is a major step in improving treatments.
4: So they're hoping that looking for these epigenetic changes might be... Uh, On one side, a marker for looking for changes in people to see whether these cancerous changes are happening in their colon, but also a potential target for treatments.
2: Well, yes, it tells us where genes are being turned on or off. So that gives us a target for treatment because we can try and reverse the changes that have happened. But if it is indeed a signature of cancerous cells, then we can look at families of cells and hopefully see when these mutations are building up and try and stop the cancer before it really starts to take hold.
4: Well, now with a roundup of the other science stories hitting the headlines this week, here's Miracinthelingam.
8: Recovering drug addicts can reduce their chances of relapse by manipulating their memories of drug use. The process of extinction, where cues of drug use such as videos of others using drugs are shown over a period of time without actually administering the drugs, has previously been shown to reduce cravings in the clinic. But effectiveness in the real world can be limited. Now, reporting in the journal Science, Lin Lu from Peking University has found that briefly exposing addicts to these cues, up to an hour before then treating them through the longer process of extinction, can help retrieve and rewrite their memories of drug use, reducing their chances of relapse. Barry Everett from the University of Cambridge comments.
9: The key point really is that there's this process called extinction where you keep presenting stimuli that are associated with something like a drug, again and again and again, so then the stimuli change from meaning drug to meaning no drug, and so you tend to stop responding to it When the person goes back out onto the streets and encounters those stimuli again, they haven't lost their value at all. And what happens when you do this brief retrieval before you do the extinction training is that the context specificity seems to have gone and the memory's erased. You seem to unlearn the fact that the stimuli ever meant drug, and it doesn't seem to come back.
8: Social status can alter the expression of genes and consequently the health of female macaque monkeys. Working with females in 10 macaque social groups, Jenny Tung from the University of Chicago found differences in the expression and activity of a thousand genes, as well as levels of immune response, depending on a monkey's social ranking within the group. The findings, published in the journal PNAS, showed that monkeys with a higher social status had increased levels of immune regulation and inflammatory control as a result of these changes in gene expression. And this changed with any rises or falls in social rank.
6: Social dominance rank in female rhesus macaques has a strong and pervasive impact on gene expression. We think that this signature is plastic in response to changes in one's social environment. The findings that social stress influenced the genome in such a potent manner is likely to be paralleled in humans.
8: Craters formed by asteroid collisions could be a good place to search for life on other planets according to research in the journal Astrobiology. Studying craters on Earth, Charles Cackel from the University of Edinburgh found microbes living deep beneath the Chesapeake Bay crater in the US, which was formed by an asteroid colliding 35 million years ago. These findings suggest that similar crater sites on other planets could be hosting life beneath their surface.
9: What this work shows is that asteroid and comet impacts can actually be good for life by creating fractures through which energy and nutrients can flow. So rather than just being catastrophic, they can be beneficial to life. And this might also show that if we're to look for life on other planets, perhaps the deep subsurface of fractured impact craters, such as on Mars, would be the best places to look.
8: And finally, athletes could be helped to run faster without any additional training, according to mathematicians at the University of Cambridge. John Barrow calculated that if factors such as reaction time to the start gun, wind conditions and altitude were taken into account, Olympic champion Usain Bolt could improve his 100-metre sprint time by up to 0.12 seconds.
9: If he improved his reaction time by three hundredths of a second, he could improve his record from 9.58 to 9.55. If he had the benefit of of the full measure of following wind, 2 metres per second, that he's allowed, then he can bring his record down to 9.49 of a second. And finally, if he were to go up to 1,000 metres of altitude, where the air is thinner and there is less resistance to his sprinting, his record would come down to 9.46. By developing these sorts of considerations, you can pick on the places where there is scope for improvement.
8: And that work was published in the journal Significance. Mira Centeringham with our Naked Scientist News Flash.
4: Transcripts and the references for all of our news this week can be found on our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news.
2: Thank you very much, Sarah. The World Health Organization estimates that every year almost two and a half million people worldwide die as a direct result of air pollution, and many more suffer respiratory problems and lung disease, which can cut life expectancy by many years. In London, air quality regularly fails to meet European standards, and that's of particular concern this year when the city hosts the Olympics. At the University of Leicester, scientists and engineers have been developing a new scanning system that can monitor air pollution, which they're getting ready to deploy in time for the Games. Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham went there to meet Roland Lee and Rosie Graves from the university's Earth Observation Science Group. Standing outside his lab, Roland explained what you could find in the air.
10: Urban environments are cleaner than they used to be, but still we have a, a lot of emissions that come from the traffic network in particular. We have nitrogen dioxide, we have particulate matter, and we have ozone coming out of the exhaustive cars that then we breathe in. And what's that doing to us? Some of it affects the airways to to the lungs, so what we breathe in and our respiratory tract and the way that our body responds to that. And some of it gets into our bloodstream and actually affects the cardiovascular system uh, and how our heart responds. So none of that's good. Where is it all coming from? Much of it, 95% of the nitrogen dioxide, for example, in an urban environment comes from the vehicles, from
7: cars, from heavy goods vehicles and from buses. Now, pollution is already monitored. There are monitoring stations around the country, particularly in in big cities. But you've developed a new type of scanner, which is uh, here in front of us. Now, I guess it looks a bit like an oversized speed camera mounted on on a plinth. So that means it can rotate. It's triangular, I suppose, with a hatch at one side.
10: We realised several years ago that we could monitor air quality using scattered sunlight. So there is a a possibility to create an instrument that just receives scattered sunlight and tells you how much nitrogen dioxide there is in the air. So this instrument is designed to sit on top of a tall building and produce an image of the nitrogen dioxide over a complete urban environment, really letting you see the individual emission sources and where those pollutants end up
7: downwind. So does that mean you can map where these particular pollutants are, where these chemicals are in the atmosphere, rather than get a snapshot of how much there is. Exactly. Yes.
10: Yes. With multiple instruments, you can get a three D reconstruction of where these gas fields are. So traditional sensors take in a single point measurement. They suck in air down a tube, and they give you a very accurate point measurement. That might be by a roadside. We, between two or three instruments, can map out a complete urban area and tell you where, where the nitrogen dioxide is in that space. So, for example, here, several years ago, we picked up the railway station in Leicester with uh, an early prototype of this instrument and watched trains leave the railway station, and that was quite a new bit of information for our local authority that didn't really realize how much was coming out of an individual train as it pulled out of the
7: station and where that emission went it is a curious looking machine it's uh, imagine around the size of a microwave oven but a triangular microwave oven and you look inside it's full of circuit boards and wires and there's a box in the middle which is covered in a silver bubble wrap i, I guess that's that's the heart of it Exactly. That's the heart of the
10: instrument. That's a spectrometer that was originally designed to be a satellite instrument for air quality mapping by Surrey Satellite Technologies. So the spectrometer takes in sunlight. In our case, we have filters that means it's just above UV to what is about yellow to red, and we then pull out bits of information in the blue to green bits of that light to the point where it's much more sensitive than the human eye would be to those slight subtle changes in color but this spectrometer can really tell us how much of a one shade of green there is and that one shade of green is is, is a shade that is absorbed by nitrogen dioxide so with that real high sensitivity
7: to these colors you can pull out that information on the gases. Now Rosie you're looking to use this during the Olympics uh, really as a, a way of testing it out.
8: As part of a UK-wide project called Clearflow, we'll be going to the Olympics in July and August this year. We'll be deploying three of the instruments on three different buildings around the city centre to the west of the city generally and trying to map out the pollution over the city in this quite unusual time for us. Obviously the roads will be different, there'll be a lot more people in London to normal, so it'll be quite interesting to see what happens.
7: So, Roland, how is information from this going to be used or from other sensors going to be used? Because you can look right now on a website and see London or a lot of other cities around the country and around the world that pollution levels are being exceeded. Mm -hmm. This will, again, tell you that pollution levels are being exceeded. We are, in fact, developing systems which
10: take in data from this and enable the local authorities to make decisions on traffic management and air quality management at the same time and that's where we're really trying to make a difference where people can be informed when there's going to be poor air quality days in the future so the local authority knows where to direct traffic which roads to avoid which which areas have sensitized individuals that's really where you start making a difference to people's lives and having that societal impact that we all try and achieve
2: Roland Lee and Rosie Graves from the University of Leicester. You can hear more about that in the latest Planet Earth podcast, which you can find on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash planet earth.
1: Distilling the best science. The Naked Scientists.
2: You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, and with Sarah Castor-Perry. This week we are diving into the science of the deep sea.
4: Arguably, one of the most extreme environments to inhabit is one near a volcano. But what about when that volcano is underwater? As we heard from Alan Jamieson earlier, subduction zones in the deep sea are very seismically active. Jason Hall-Spencer from Plymouth University has been looking at how subsea volcanoes affect the acidity of seawater and how this affects the species found nearby. He spoke to Robin Williams from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's Science Show at a recent conference in Canada.
11: I was first studying carbon dioxide vents near the mountain of Vesuvius, this famous one in Italy, where the toe of the volcano is acidifying the water naturally because of high CO2 release. And the very clear thing that we saw at that vent system was that as you go in, into the carbon dioxide bubbles, you get less and less types of organisms that can survive that. CO2 is a stressor for animals. It's actually a fertilizer for some plants, so some plants there are growing really well. They're like lush grass beds and various types of algae that, that thrive. But unfortunately, many of the animals that you'd want to be there are disappearing. That was my last four years' work, probably. But then it became clear that if we're going to make global predictions about the effects of CO2 on the oceans, we need to see if we can replicate our evidence for this problem from other parts of the planet. So I've been going to these vent systems in in Baja, California, three volcanoes in Papua New Guinea, and other volcanic vents in Europe to see if we get the same effects and actually worryingly we get exactly the same uh, response as CO2 goes up the biodiversity goes down and there are key organisms like uh, sea urchins and coralline algae that just can't survive these conditions
12: these events underwater presumably
11: yeah yes sorry it's like a jacuzzi of bubbles underwater they're very very beautiful when you roll over the back of the boat start swimming through as a diver it's exotic it's um, very unusual but it's not until you start looking carefully and counting organisms on the seabed that you realize something's Amiss, something's not quite right.
12: If they're there anyway, haven't they been pre-adapted to that sort of environment?
11: Yeah, they, they probably have. There's organisms there that are growing very, very well. What we're doing, actually, our new Nature Climate Change paper, is all about transplant experiments we've done, moving organisms that are from in this high CO2 world of the volcanic vent system outside into current-day conditions. And what's interesting is they have actually upregulated their ability to calcify. They're able to lay down shell much faster than in the normal world that we see today.
12: So they have adapted to that. What happens if the CO2 goes even higher than the, at the vents?
11: Well, that, that is clearly problematic because then they die. <laughs> the, the water becomes so corrosive that these organisms can't protect themselves. Unstressed organisms, ones with plenty of food, where the temperature doesn't get too high, they can actually protect themselves very often from corrosion. When we look at the CO2 vents in Papua New Guinea, for example, there are corals there that are able to lay down skeletons and able to calcify despite the high CO2 levels that we expect in the coming decades. But the problem is, when you start swimming around in these high CO2 equivalents of the Great Barrier Reef, is the numbers of species have gone through the floor. It's really crashed. And that system is probably represents the least worst case scenario because these volcanic vent systems in Papua New Guinea can be colonised by organisms from outside the vents. Now, that clearly won't be possible when the whole global ocean is acidified. There won't be this recruitment from healthy populations outside. The Papua New Guinea reefs are the, the most diverse on Earth. They've got some strains of those corals that can survive. That's good news for coral reefs, of course. But the bad news for people who like to see corals is the diversity has gone right down.
12: I see, and the whole point about survival is that the biodiversity needs to be complex. In other words, if you lose a great number of species, so the system
11: then threatens to collapse. Well, that's right. Farmers typically like to reduce the biodiversity to the barest minimum because if you plough a field and grow crops, you make the system more efficient for producing food. You might think, therefore, that the seas would be better if we just simplified the whole thing, killed all these excess species that we don't want because we could get more food from it. Now, that may be the case for some organisms that you can culture, but in Canada, here, where this interview is taking place, the aquaculture industry is finding that the waters are becoming too acidified for them to grow the oysters that they want to grow up into adults.
12: Already that's happening?
11: Yeah, it's happening now. There's a quirk of oceanography, is that the coast uh, in the northeast part of the Pacific... It's old water that's been... It originally sank in my part of the world, the North Atlantic. It sank down to the bottom of the deep sea and it eventually wound its way around the earth and is upwelling here. It's coming to the surface here. So that's been accumulating carbon dioxide from the respiration of organisms all of that time. So it's already got CO2 loading naturally and we're adding in on top of that from the atmosphere extra CO2. That makes this water corrosive to things like oysters, And so the oyster farmers here have got this double problem, upwelling natural water that's high CO2, which the oysters were able to cope with, but now on top of that, that extra CO2 going in from above.
12: How concerned are you that the CO2 increase is going to lead to a general problem because lots of people have said in the last few months that uh, the adaptation that you mentioned, the fact that uh, there can be some resilience in certain
11: creatures, might be something that will uh, obviate the whole thing. Well, I'm very encouraged that areas that are protected from stressors are actually more resilient as systems. So the more species you've got, the better they are to cope with things like acidification. And that's why these marine protected areas that are being rolled out around the planet are such a good idea. I give them my full support because a resilient system buys you insurance against those chemical changes in the water that really we can't do much about because the CO2 is already in the atmosphere. These areas are going to become acidified. If you've got healthy seagrass beds, for example, just by living there, they raise the pH of the water. Photosynthetic organisms raise the pH. That's got to be a good thing in the face of acidification because calcifiers, things that build shells or skeletons, continue to do so in the regions of seagrass beds. If you remove the seagrass beds or if you abuse the habitats and lower their diversity, then this natural solution to the problem can't happen.
12: Yeah, I was amazed to hear from the University of Queensland some research showing that mangrove swamps, trees and seagrasses are 60 times more effective than even rainforests in mopping up CO2. That's
11: a good idea to look after them, isn't it? They do the job for us. We're trying to pump carbon dioxide down below the seabed of the North Sea to lock it away because we're actually burning it and putting it in the atmosphere. That's got to be a good idea to, to stop doing that, to lock it up in perpetuity. But that's an engineering solution that's probably it's got its own inefficiencies. But if we can let nature do some of that work for us, that's, that's sensible.
4: That was Jason Hall-Spencer talking to Robin Williams from The Science Show on ABC Radio National Australia.
11: We are
2: diving into the deep, dark depths this week and we're joined by Dr Alan Jameson from Ocean App at the University of Aberdeen. We've had quite a few questions coming in, actually. Roy from Waplo Drove in Lincolnshire says that uh, a little while ago the French were looking at designing robots to explore deep-sea trenches in the Philippines. Alan, is is this the sort of technology that we need to be looking at, getting robots, getting automated devices to do our research for us?
5: I think so, yeah. I think the uh, remotely operated vehicles are are one of the key tools we have now, I think. I know that James Cameron has just built this man submersible, but I think as, as soon as you have a human being inside it, you're completely limited on bottom time, and you know there's a danger element there, and there's such horrendous sort of, uh, support costs associated with that. So I think the, the idea is to do it all robotically or remotely from the surface.
2: And you've been involved in your career in developing quite a lot of the technology that we've actually been putting down there. What do you think have been the, the really big developments recently that have enabled us to, to spend more time down there to collect more data and really just to learn more. A couple of things.
5: One is the materials we're available now, like titanium and, and, and sapphire crystal in particular, to make to make high-pressure viewports. Uh, it's been a big leap forward in terms of pressure-proofing cameras to 10,000 meters. And the, the other thing is, is data storage as well. I mean, you can get terabytes now of, of in-situ storage, which is pretty good. But our only problem at the moment is that we've obviously got to make this jump from standard video to HD. And at the moment, uh, handling that volume of HD video uh, in terms of memory is becoming quite problematic.
4: Now, Alan, we were talking earlier about the landers that you're going to be using uh, for the Hades project. And I was just wondering, I I know that below a certain depth, you you end up having a a negative buoyancy, so you'll actually sink where normally at the surface you you would float. How do you overcome that for your lander? So you said that you send down an acoustic pulse, which makes them jump back up to the surface how do they overcome the negative buoyancy
5: what we do is before we put them in the sea we set all the cameras up to run on a time lapse mode and we have a system whereby we attach three 40 kilogram steel weights and then we deploy it over the side and the, the steel weights make it com- entirely negatively buoyant it still takes about four and a half hours in complete free fall to get to ten meters because remember that depth is about the same altitude as a jumbo jet will fly so it's a long way to go so, of course, it crash lands on the bottom, and then when, when we've decided that enough's enough, maybe 12 or 24 hours later, we have devices on the land that are called acoustic releases, and they works holding the steel weights. So each one has a unique number, like a phone number, and you just call it and say, release the weights. It understands it over, over quite a long distance and then drops the weights, and we have flotation devices on the top of it that bring it back to the surface. So it's, it's pretty simple. Expensive, but the principle is simple.
2: And once they're down there, how are we actually powering them? I assume that we have to use batteries, but... Do batteries work under that sort of pressure? Do you need novel batteries in order to do it?
5: Well, what we do is we normally use our conventional lead acid car battery, and we sink the whole thing into oil, which is inert, so it's pressure compensated. There's no air space, there's nothing to collapse under pressure. Uh, as long as the oil's inert, the electrical contact still works. So that's a kind of cheap and cheerful way of doing it. But lead acid battery capacities are, are slightly limited, so we have other systems where we use lithium ion. Uh, but they have to be inside pressure housings because the last thing you want to do with lithium is get it wet. <laughs> and there's a certain <laughs> danger element involved with lithium as well where things don't go right. So, But the batteries is a big, big issue with us,
2: especially in autonomous systems. Fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much, Alan. That's Alan Jamieson from Ocean Lab at the University of Aberdeen.
4: And now, applying her moisturiser without having to worry about her waistline, here's Hannah Critchlow with our question of the week.
1: The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from Alpha to Omega.
4: This week we find out if a liberal slathering of oil-based moisturiser softens our wastes in more ways than one. My name's Heather McPherson and I'm from Ontario, Canada. I was adding an oil-based moisturiser to my face and I was wondering, does that absorb any calories into my system? With the answer...
9: My name is Richard Guy and I'm a professor of pharmaceutical sciences at the University of Bath in England. Given that a normal-sized person, a grown-up person, has a skin surface area of nearly two square meters, and given that we're about 70% made up of water on the inside, we would lose a lot of water across the skin if it didn't perform efficiently as a protective barrier. It carries out this remarkable feat primarily through a very thin, specialized layer, the stratum corneum. This layer on most parts of the body is only about 1 one-hundredth of a millimeter thick, Under the microscope, the stratum corneum looks a little bit like a brick wall. The bricks of the skin cells, while the bricks can take up water, the lipids filling the spaces between them provide an oily film into which water transfers reluctantly. Remember that old adage that water and oil don't mix. So what happens when we apply oil-based creams to our face to provide some moisturization during cold, dry winters? Is the oil or fat in the cream absorbed into the body making us put on weight? Well, the short answer is no, not to any extent that you would notice around your waistline. The function of the oily part of moisturizing creams is to reinforce the lipids in the stratum corneum and to make it even more difficult for water to escape. But where do the oils or the fats go in the end? Well, they mix in with the natural lipids of the stratum corneum and some may well move gradually into the deeper layers of this thin barrier. But once on the other side, they encounter an environment which is very watery. An oily substance, this is not an attractive place. And therefore, fat transfer out of the stratum corneum will be very slow and unfavourable. As a result, the amount of oils and the cream that will end up reaching the inside of the body will be very low.
4: So, we can oil up our outsides without worrying too much about our insides. And with that calorific quandary solved, a new question for us to chew over during this coming week.
10: Hello there, I'm Christine Lang and I'm based in Canterbury, Kent. I occasionally have trouble sleeping and have found that reading a book just before bed really helps me to relax and feel tired. I was considering getting one of those electronic book readers that are becoming popular, but was just wondering, in what way would the light and constant flickering from the screen affect your brain, and will it stimulate it in such a way that it would prevent you from becoming tired?
4: So, a monitor screens and e-books more than your standard page-turner, leaving you tossing, turning and up all night? Send your thoughts to chris at thenakedscientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, write on our Facebook page or join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientistscom forum. That was Hannah Critchlow with our question of the week and like she said, if you think you know the answer to whether e-readers might keep you awake rather than a book, do write on our forum or check out our Facebook page.
2: And I would like to say that the best thing to do if you're having trouble getting sleep is to sit down and listen to the Naked Scientists. but I think we'll keep you awake all night with your head buzzing with science questions or at least I hope so. That's all we have time for this week. Next week we're going to fit 40 week winks into 60 minutes as we look at the science of body clocks and sleep and how disrupting your internal clock might be bad for your health. You can email your questions in to chris at scientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientists or post them on our Facebook page. Thanks to Alan Jamieson, T. Powers, Jason Hall-Spencer and Robin Williams and to Hannah Critchlow, Mira Lingam, and Tom Simkins.